heard. Uh, the geography of Israel. Um, honor and shame. Intertestamental period. And the Sabbath was last week. And in our future study, we're going to cover... Uh, this morning, um, we're going to cover study materials, discipleship, Jewish marriage, Jewish prayer, birth of John and Jesus, and the temptation of Christ. So that's kind of laid out what we're going to cover the rest of this quarter. Um, sit out our class this morning. Let's open with a prayer. Dear God, we're so thankful for this day. We're blessed to be your children. We're so thankful for another worship day that we can be together and to study uh, from your word. We're so thankful for our health and for you watching over us this week. We ask you to be with us during our worship service today that we are pleasing to you as we go forward and uh, praise you. All these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I have been asked... uh, couple times about study materials, how I put some of these lessons together, and what my resources are. So I want to cover some of that today. I think you'll find it interesting, hopefully, uh, about uh, some of the things that we can look at to help us understand God's Word better. However, our belief, I believe, is pretty much this. Um... 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17 is a favorite verse of ours. But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those things from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith of Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking correction, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We all believe that the Word of God is all we really need to uh, be equipped and be a servant of God and to uh, to believe in Him and to be accepted and to uh, have eternal life. We all believe that. However, some limit themselves to that, but uh, I would say to them that there are other many other materials uh, that supplement our text. Um, commentaries, Bible history, even Bible lessons, and and known Bible scholars that will assist us in understanding the Word of God better. Um, I believe as we better understand the events of the Bible and learn more about the people and the culture of the first century, uh, it will make it more relevant to our lives every day. Um, It will increase our faith and help us to relate to and understand the events as we read them. And so that's what this class, I think, is about, at least for me. Um, Ray Vanderland, I'm going to talk about him in a minute, uh, says this, to more greatly understand and appreciate the Bible, one uh, have to have a sense of the land and the culture for which it sprang. Uh, Biblical analogies and examples, while meaningful and helpful, even to this day, we first meant to convey God's truth to a particular people in a particular time and place so that the more fully we can appreciate those times and places, the more fully we can respond to the power of the Word. So I certainly believe that. So today's lesson, uh, we're going to discuss resources and uh, that I've used for developing these lessons and other studies so that as we are in our lesson today, 
I will bring out some of these resources and pretty much all the available texts and writings and speakers that are out there and will help us as we continue to study of Jesus and the land and your familiarity um, with some resources that will help us. So uh, on a personal level, I have, I want to say mentors, but that's not really the word, but teachers that I have uh, crossed paths with that I admire. Uh, I admire the biblical knowledge and church history. And so my interest in this subject was born from listening to them and hearing them speak and teach about the culture at the time of Christ. So three that I want to bring up particularly to me. Um, this gentleman is first, uh, Dr. Lemoyne Lewis. Uh, entered Abilene Christian University as a freshman and went to Harvard Divinity, Divinity School, graduating in 1944. And in 1959, uh, achieved his PhD. He taught Bible at ACU, Abilene Christian University, from 1959 until he retired in 1986. A special interest to him were undergraduate Bible students, uh, Bible majors, whom he inspired and encouraged to further their education. He was my teacher in early church history. I happened to take him really accidentally just to fill a, uh, a required curriculum. Um, it was interesting. Every day, Dr. Lewis would come into the class right when the bell rang, open his folder, and start lecturing. He would end when the bell rang, he'd close his book, and he would leave. <laughs> uh, many times as he spoke, as he was reciting some early church history, he would get emotional about what he was talking about. As if he was there. <laughs> as if he lived it. I know he was an older gentleman, but he studied this so much that as he conveyed these stories of church history, he really conveyed them very personally. And so I really admired him. And uh, you can actually get some of his lectures online still. Um, at digitalcommons.acu.edu. So if you ever want to listen to a great scholar, um, these, his, his lectures are still available. Uh, another gentleman that influenced me, um, Chris Bullard. He was the public minister at the Church of Christ in Overland Park, Kansas. Um, his education and minister, he was the education minister and senior minister of the Oakland Park Church from 1977 to 2000. He also authored six books and was pop a popular guest presenter at several Christian universities. Chris established the World of Jesus Institute to promote a deeper understanding of the cultural, political, and religious and geographical world in which Jesus taught. And that's what we're talking about during this 13-week uh, quarter. Uh, he was an adjunct professor for the uh, Jerusalem Center of Biblical Studies in Israel. He made more than 20 trips to Israel and the Holy Lands to broaden his own knowledge and his, uh, and his host spiritual researchers on their journeys to the life and world of Jesus. Uh, Chris had a passion for leading people to a closer relationship with God. He was a genuine biblical scholar uh, and master teacher. 
He held a bachelor's degree from Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, two master's degrees from Harding Graduate School of Religion uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and a doctor of ministry degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. I first heard Chris speak when I was visiting and attending his church with a friend in Overham Park. Later, I purchased a number of tapes of his on the life of Christ, Jewish marriage, marriage and divorce, and a series on Jewish culture through the world of Jesus Institute. Um, Great, great speaker and very knowledgeable about church history and biblical history. Um, Unfortunately, Chris died suddenly of a heart attack at age 57, September 14, 2006. Um, Some of the lessons we'll have later really follow some of his guidelines, marriage and Jewish prayer we'll talk about in the next couple weeks. The next gentleman, and you may know him or have heard of him, uh, Ray Vanderland, since receiving his Master's Divinity in Westminster Theological Seminary in 1986, Ray Vanderland has been actively involved in studying and teaching Jewish culture um, using the methods of Jewish education. He was a continued graduate in Jewish studies in the United States, Israel, Turkey, Egypt. He has been a teacher for 35 years and is an ordained minister from the Christian Reformed Church. He founded, and this is where I uh, hooked up with him, the World May Know Ministries in 1998. We have had some of those videos here, have presented here. Ray has taken over 10,000 people uh, with him to study and study in the tours of Israel, Turkey, and, and Egypt. Um, Ray's preaching and teaching ministry is focused on understanding the Bible in light of the historical and cultural context in which God placed it. The perspective on the Bible highlights God's call for his people to be transformed, influenced on their culture. He uses research of the top scholars in the field of archaeology and history and biblical study as a tool to explore the biblical text ever more deeply. His gifts and expertise calling are linked to the cultural information and the Bible so that its message applies to our lives today in very practical ways. Uh, I encourage you to Google him, uh, look up uh, The World May Know Ministries. There are a number of videos that you can purchase or listen to, and he is fantastic on this subject. And in his videos, he will be on tour in Israel so you can actually see the actual sites uh, where he is speaking. So, three people that really influenced me on a personal level. Um, In addition, some of the study guides that I have used uh, for this class, uh, The Land in the Book, oh, study materials here, let me go to the next one. The Land in the Book is one. Uh, Two of these were recommended to me by Chris Bullard when I talked to him earlier, and I've used some of the, much of this in the presentations that I've made. The Land in the Book covers geographical overview of Israel, historical overview, biblical studies, and towns of Judea, um, descriptions of many towns, villages, and geographical locations in Palestine. So if you want to know why Nathaniel said when speaking about the Christ, can anything come out of Nazareth, anything good come out of Nazareth, this talks about the village of Nazareth and why he might have said that. So it reveals information that we can all use. Um, the next one uh, that I kind of named this class after, Jesus and the Land. Uh, 
is a book that focuses on the major events of the Bible during the life of Jesus, calling on the disciples, the Last Supper and the death of Jesus, um, the land of Jesus, early Christian life, Galilean ministry, and Judean ministry. Um, I didn't bring all these with me. I took pictures because I would have had a whole big box, but I did bring some resources that we're going to look at in a minute. Um, Jesus and his times. This is one I just bought off the shelf accidentally, but I have found it really great. It uh, covers the birth of the Savior, uh, village life, um, the life in the mind, teachers of the first century, trade, travel, religious conflict, mission, and Messiah. As you can tell, he's got great pictures. I love pictures and drawings of that time period because it helps me visualize uh, what that life was like. And three books that are kind of very similar, and I've just picked these up somewhere along the way. Manners and Customs in the Bible, Illustrated Dictionary of the Bible. These cover a whole host of subjects. Geography of Palestine, minerals, animals, insects, plants, uh, architecture, tools, trade and transportation, uh, warfare, weapons, forms of government, economics, language, birth of, birth of childhood, uh, marriage, diseases and healing, food, clothing, architecture, and music. Uh, so if you want to understand any of those kind of things that are cultural as related to the time of Israel and the time of Christ, these are great books to look at. Uh, one I did bring with me was this, and a lot of other scholars use this, or teachers use this, Josephus, The Complete Works. Um, if you're not familiar with that, uh, it's a Jewish uh, background in history, um, an extensive record of politics and the life of the Jews at the time of Jesus and his followers from the historian Flavius Josephus. Uh, Josephus wrote two major works during this period, the Jewish Wars, which ends with the capture of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the Jewish Antiquities, uh, the story of the Jewish people up to the fall of Masada in AD 73. I use this primarily as a reference. Um, and you'll see when I open it up, you don't want to sit down and just start reading this. It's very detailed, very small type. There's a lot of information here. A lot of it very boring to read. But I use this as a resource, so if I, if I know in a section where it talks about Jesus and his life or about some other historical um, event, you can find it in here and definitely glean more information. Uh, when we talked about earlier the intertestamental period and talked about uh, the Maccabean War, a lot of that information came from this book. Uh, another item that I use, a uh, book that I use, uh, just to understand uh, God's Word better, and you may have one of these, I don't know, it's Greek, English, Interlinear, New Testament. Uh, it contains uh, a literal word-for-word -word in English, rendered from the Greek interlinear form, and helps to more fully understand the Greek translation in English. So, if you want to understand a particular word and you're confused about uh, what is actually said there, you can look at this and look up the Greek word and all the meanings of that word, and uh, it will, it's very helpful in some of those cases. Uh, the next book that uh, we talked about last week um, 
Everyman's Talmud is a really a Cliff's Notes of the Talmud. Uh, this classic introduction reveals the wisdom of the rabbinic sages on such topics as the doctrine of God, God in the universe, the soul, and its destiny, prophecy, um, revelation, physical life, moral life, and social living, law, ethics, and jurisprudence, uh, legends and folk, uh, folk traditions, uh, the Messiah, and the world to come. Um, next, of course, is the Talmud itself. Uh, last week I described uh, what this book was. Uh, this uh, series of books, which is a number of volumes, is the oral law written down uh, in AD 70 by a, a Pharisee named Judah Hanasi. Um, the Talmud was the centerpiece of Jewish cultural life and was the foundation to all Jewish thought and aspirations, um, serving as the guide to daily life of the Jews. After studying all these books and looking at these, um, I come to realize that we, at least from my perspective, completely underestimate the intellect and the dedication of the early Jews to God's word. Uh, way back in the first century, we think of them as backwards, uneducated uh, people. And as we read through this, you find out that is not the case at all. These people were intelligent. They wanted to do God's will. They studied God's word every day and really changed my perspective on who these people were. So, the Talmud. 18 volumes, 62 what they call tractates or treaties about uh, legal rulings. To explain this, Judah Hanasi, when he wrote this down, wrote down the legal aspects of what the law was. That's called the Mishnah, as you see up here on the board. And what happened after that is all the rabbis had a discussion and, and added an evaluation or uh, expounded on that law. For instance, um, Mishnah were legal rulings made up of six sections with 63 tract tapes and treaties uh, covering subjects such as the existence of God, his omnipresence, eternity, justice, mercy, fatherhood, holiness, perfection, angels, uh, Israel and the nations, the human being, the soul, faith and prayer, free will, all of this is in the, in the Talmud. Um, sin, repentance, atonement, the Torah and the study of the Torah, practice of the Torah, women of marriage and divorce, children education, master and workman, peace and justice, brotherly love, humanity, charity, honesty, forgiveness, temperance, care of the body, rules of health, treaties of disease, demons, evil eye, magic and dreams, judges, witnesses, trials, punishments, torts, found property, sale of property, tenancy, and inheritance. The Messiah, the resurrection of the dead, the world to come, and the last judgment. Just a few subjects that they covered in this set of writings. Very extensive. So that was the legal part of the Mishnah, of the Talmud, the Mishnah. 
and the second part they called the completion which was the Gemara. Uh, in uh, the three centuries following the writing of the Mishnah the rabbis analyzed, debated, and discussed that work. These discussions from the Gemara, Gemara mainly focuses on elucidate, uh, elucidating and elaborating on the opinions of the teachers of the rules of law. So, the law was the Mishnah, the evaluation and the discussion came afterwards was Gemara. So last week I told you I had a book from the town uh, on Sabbath. And actually I forgot, I have two books. I have uh, a book from the Talmud on Sabbath and I have a book from the Talmud on uh, marriage and association with marriage called Nashim, N-A-S-H-I-M. So I wanted to read just a passage and we talked about how detailed uh, the Pharisees and the rabbis were about keeping the law on the Sabbath and how uh, extensive that was. I read about the 39, and I may just read that again to refresh your memory, about the 39 levels of work that they decide when God said uh, to do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what did that mean? Well, since they didn't know, they decided, well, this is what work means. And the rabbis decided that the primary labors are 40 less one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, shifting, kneading, baking, shearing, wool, bleaching, hackling, dyeing, spinning, stretching the thread to make two, two meshes, weaving two threads, dividing the threads, tying, knotting, tying, knot, and untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing it in order to sew two stitches, capturing a deer, capturing a deer slaughtering or filleting or salting, uh, curing the hide, scraping it, uh, cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing two in order to write two letters, uh, building, pulling down, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, carrying out from one domain to another. These are the 40 primary labors. So, you want to know what you can't do on Sabbath? There's a whole list that they came up with. What does work mean? Well, they had to decide. What, work, what does work mean? You know, sometimes we do the same. What does it mean to be modest? Well... <laughs> When I was young, oh, you can't wear, you can't have pierced ears at church, or you can't wear pants at church. I mean, this was some of the things I remember from my childhood. So we kind of did, have done the same thing. One thing I wanted to point out here was the very last one when it says, caring from one domain to another. Okay, what does that mean? There's public domain, and on the Sabbath, there's public domain, and there's private domain. Okay? You can't carry something from public domain to private domain or vice versa on the Sabbath because that would be work, right? Very first chapter of the Sabbath, uh, of, of uh, the Shabbat uh, tractate. <clears throat> the carrying out of the Sabbath are two, which are four within and which are four without. The poor man stands without and the master of the house within. Okay, what he's asking, he's saying. The poor man is outside the house, in the public domain. The master is inside the house, in private domain. The poor man stretches his hand within and places into the hand of the master of the house 
or if he takes from the master and carries it out, the poor man is liable. Meaning the poor man has sinned. If he's walking down the street, has something, gives it to the master of the house inside the window, that's considered work. Or if he drags something from a private location to outside into the public location, that's considered work. The same way if the master of the house reaches from inside the house to outside the house and gives the poor man food, that's work. And he is what? He is the one who sinned. All I want to emphasize to you is how detailed they were about what constituted work. Now, did God say this was work? No. But that's what they came up with as work, so everyone would know what work was. That's uh, Shabbat. Uh, I also said I had this one I forgot about. Uh, this is a cool book um, about marriage. Um, it has about five different sections or, or tractates in here about marriage uh, and divorce. Um, this is cool because uh, it's also got the Hebrew. This is Hebrew and English in here. And as you can tell, this is not a normal book. This is a normal book. This is the end. This is the beginning. It's backwards. So that's how it was. That's how the Hebrews did it. Backwards. So very interesting reading in there as well. Um, the Talmud talks about these two gentlemen. Do we know who these people are? Anybody? Good. I didn't know who they were either for a long time. Hillel and Shammai were two prominent teachers, rabbis, during the first century. Hillel started a rabbinical school called Tanim, which means teaching. His contemporary Shammai also founded a school during the first seven decades of the first century. So this is during the time of Christ. Um, two teachers and their disciples dominated the thought which uh, was current in pharisaic circles. So two prominent rabbis and their schools of thought. On the whole, Hillel favored the more lenient interpretation of the law, while Shammai took the stricter view. The Talmud records 300 points of divergence between them. In other words, Hillel and Shammai often took opposite sides on a specific subject. Um, so things were not all that different long ago, right? In the first century, it was like today. Who are you, liberal? Hillel or conservative Shammai, Republican or Democrat. So it was in the time of Christ, do you, who do you follow, Hillel or Shammai? And when we read through the Bible, some of the Pharisees take these same points of uh, opinion. So we thought in our previous uh, class that uh, in the New Testament that the major disagreement was between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees confronted Jesus. Jesus responded back to them. Uh, and, and as we have learned, uh, beat them in their words every time. Uh, but on a daily basis, the Pharisees argued and discussed these things all the time. And as you can see from Hillel and Shammai, often they did not agree. So it was just not a disagreement between Christ and the Pharisees. 
Um, and I'm going to read some examples of those. Uh, these com this comes from Every Man's Talmud. Like I said, this is the cliff notes of the Talmud uh, itself. Um, they covered all kinds of different ideas and questions. Which was produced first, heaven or earth? The school of Shammai said that heaven was created first and then earth. The school of Hillel said that earth was created first, then heaven. Each of them gave a reason for its opinion. The school of Shammai likened the matter to a king who made a throne for himself and afterwards a footstool. Thus says the Holy One, blessed be he. By the way, that's how they address God. They don't call him by name. They say, the Holy One, blessed be he. The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The school of Hillel likened the matter to a king who erected a palace. He first built the lower stories and then the upper. So, another a discussion between Hillel and Shammai. Uh, Rabbi Shammai believed only worthy students should be admitted to the study of the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Rabbi Hillel believed that the Torah may be taught to anyone in the ex expectation that they will repent and become worthy. <clears throat> How about lies? Whether one should tell a, an ugly bride that she is beautiful, Rabbi Shammai said it was wrong to lie. And Rabbi Hillel said that all brides are beautiful on their way. Divorce. Rabbi Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for serious transgressions, but Rabbi Hillel allowed divorce for even the trivial offenses such as burning a meal. How about forgetting to say grace at meals? Rabbi Shammai says that one, uh, one who forgot to pray and had left the place where he ate should return to that place to recite his prayer. Rabbi Hillel says that one should recite his prayer in the place where he is when he realizes his omission. One of my favorite stories, uh, the story is told that a heathen came to Shammai with a request to be accepted as a convert on the, on the, on the condition that he was taught the whole of the Torah while he stood on one foot. The rabbi drove him away with the yardstick when, the, which he was holding. He then went to Hillel with the same request, and he said to him, What is hateful to you yourself, do not, do not to your fellow man. This is the whole of the Torah, and the remainder is but commentary. So, if you ever read through the Torah and, and study up on the Torah, you'll find numerous times there are stories in there about Hillel and Shammai and uh, their opinions. And this happened during the time of Christ, so we don't get an inkling of that from the biblical text, but it's as you read through some of their opinions, you see those influence in some of the questions that the Pharisees ask Jesus or challenge Jesus with. Um, some other points of discussion that I wanted to read. Let's see what time. Uh, the question was discussed whether the creation of light preceded the creation of the world. Now, 
these guys talk about everything. What was, was created first, light or the world? It's amazing that they want to discuss this. Rabbi Isaac said light was created first of all the peril, by the peril of the king who wished to erect a palace and the locality was in darkness. What did he do? He lit torches and lanterns to know where he, where he had to fix the foundations. Similarly, was light created first? Uh, Rabbi Nehemiah said the world was created first by the peril of the king who built a palace and then adorned it later with light and torches. The closeness of God. Much more prominent, however, in the Talmudic literature is the concept of God's eminence in the world and his nearness to man. It follows as corollary from the doctrine of his eminence how happily the rabbis synthesize the two aspects of the deity is illustrated by this extract. An idol appears to be near at hand, but is in reality far off. Why? It is borne upon the shoulder. It is carried and is set in place. But though one cry to it, it cannot answer, nor save him out of trouble. The end of the matter is, he has, he has his God with him in his house, but he may cry unto it until he dies without it hearing or resuscitating from his plight. On the other hand, the Holy One, blessed be he, therefore follows a reverence to the measurable distance of his dwelling place from the earth, as cited above and, and the morals below. However high above the world he is, uh, let a man enter a synagogue and stand behind a pillar and pray in a whisper, and the Holy One, blessed be he, hearkens to his prayer. Can there be a God nearer than this, who is close to his creatures as the mouth is to his ear? So when we think about the early Israelites and the people of that time, this is the stuff they were discussing. They were constantly talking about God's word. See how many more I have to, to look over. Uh, and they did recognize the Holy Spirit. Accordingly, they called uh, the Spirit the Shechaniah. The Shechaniah is often depicted under the figure of a figure of light. The scriptural phrase, "The earth did not shine with his glory," receives the comment, "This is the face of the Shechaniah." And the priestly benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee, in an inter interpreted, may he give thee the light of the Shechaniah, of the Holy Spirit. So they were also in tune with who the Holy Spirit was. Uh, I've got some others here. Education, how to pray, purpose of prayer, repentance. I'm going to skip through some of those. But I think you get a flavor of what they talked about daily in their daily life, and all that is, is from the Talmud. Uh, skip one. There we are. The Torah. So what is the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of Moses, including the Oral Law. Um, the rabbis believed that the, that the Torah touched life at every point. It dealt with the whole existence of man. Um, then it was received by Moses uh, from Mount Sinai, 125. Moses received the Torah on Sinai and handed it down to Joshua, 
Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it down to the men of the great assembly. They said three things, be delivered in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the Torah. Um, what did they say about the study of the Torah? If three have eaten at the table and have spoken there no words of the Torah, it is as if they had eaten the sacrifice of idols. Now the Torah, the written Torah, um, is divided into two parts. Halakha and Haggadah. Has anyone heard of this? Halakha and Haggadah. We got one. The Halakha in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, is the legal rulings. A lot of Leviticus, right? The legal rulings. Haggadah is everything else. <laughs> the rabbis believe the Torah, the first five books of Moses, was divided into two parts. The Haggadah, legal rulings, the commandments. It stands for the rigidity of the authority of the law. Haggadah is everything that is not halakha. Narrations, legends, tales, poems, stories, ethical reflections, historical reminiscences, the dictate of common sense and morality. In the first century, all the rabbis were focused primarily on Haggadah, moral instructions, telling parables, telling legends, because their focus was on edifying and exhorting and teaching how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So, what does the Bible say how Jesus is taught? He taught in parables. Matthew 13, 34. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So, so was fulfilled that was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. That is how the first century Jesus' teaching was focused, on parables, on Haggadah, not Halakah, the legal rulings. He was focusing on Haggadah, how to live before God. But things change after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. All these religious groups, Essenes, Sadducees, Pharisees, were going out of business. The remaining Pharisees uh, that knew that their temple was destroyed and people were being killed by the thousands, uh, their religion was about to be obliterated. And they said, we've got to take a stand and show we are different than everybody else. We are different from the Gentiles. So from that point on, they stressed the legal aspects of God's word, the halakha, who is a Jew and who is not. What you can do and what you cannot do. What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? So much of the Talmud, which was assembled after AD 70, talks about the legal aspects of their life. What you can do or not do to make yourself right before God. But as we talked about, Jesus taught in parables, right? He didn't live under a time when he emphasized the law. He lived and emphasized 
Haggadah, moral encouragement. A great example of this. Uh, John 8, 2 through 11. Uh, at dawn appeared, uh, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses, right? They're talking about law. Commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. But Jesus went down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sure, she said. So when neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared, go and leave your life of sin. So what did Jesus do? The Pharisees asked, about the law, the, hag, uh, the halakha. But Jesus replied, not halakha, haggadah, not condemnation, but repentance. How to live, how to go and leave your life of sin. So, why do I bring this up? Uh, what happened way back in the first century? Well, kind of what our attitude is about as we look through the Word of God. We as believers emphasize halakha, legal aspects, or haggadah, how to live before God. Do we see the Bible as a book of laws? Do this, don't do that. Or do we see the Bible as a guidebook on how to live a life pleasing to God? So, when the restoration movement happened in our world, um, our brotherhood initially focused in on interpreting the Bible from a halakha, from a law book perspective. We have de-emphasized the application at times, how to live a life worthy of God, instead we're focusing on God's Bible as a law book. Who is a Christian? Who is not? We've had these discussions. Who is my brother? Who is not? How can we know if we are right before God or not? Can I marry this person or not? I'm not saying these are not important, but this sometimes has been our emphasis. But if we look back to the life of Christ, we see that he did not emphasize those things. Jesus' focus was on application, how he came to teach people the way to live. While knowing and obeying God's word as best we can is very important for us, not to forget that, that, the, that to be too true Christian children of God, we need to apply the word of God in our life if we want to be pleasing to him. So, I hope I didn't bore you too much with texts and books and stuff like that, but uh, maybe this was helpful for you to understand some other things in the Bible, where the Pharisees were coming from, or how... Uh, or even introduce you to uh, 
the rabbis at the time and what they believed. Um, but um, hopefully this helpful. We're going to re- reference these things as we go through our study in the next few weeks. So thank you for your attention and